So today uh, we are going to continue our series, Guide to the Psalms, is the name of it. And uh, you should have an outline. Does everybody have an outline? Because it's hard to follow what I'm going to share without an outline. Uh, Do you have an outline? So somehow it's in the bulletin if you have a bulletin. So let's uh, get somebody on. Grab a few outlines to listen and walk around just to see if there's anyone else that needs one. So... um, there should also be an insert in your bulletin that says repentance, biblically defined and examined. And uh, I decided just to reprint this and put it in your bulletin because a few weeks ago on the Tuesday night Bible study, you know, we're, doing, we're uh, going through the book together called Follow Me by David Platt. David Platt. should know his name. He's pretty famous. Um, and uh, can somebody get me a glass or like a bottle of water? That would be, be nice. So I haven't spoken it so long. So, and, and I need another coaster. Are there more coasters? Yes, I got one. Okay. So um, there's a lot of people who kind of think that in our today's church environment, the word repentance is somewhat avoided. And I hope you know that repentance is actually a daily foundation of the Christian life. You cannot walk with God at all if you don't repent every day. So um, it's not just something that you do. Uh, It's some initial experience that you invite God into your life or something. But it's something that we do every day. And so this... um, I just decided to include this handout. We're not going to go over it during, during my message. But it has eight uh, statements at the beginning that, give, that together add up to a biblical definition of what repentance is. And uh, the eighth one is the most important, save the best for last. So make sure that because a lot of times we think of repentance as being primarily from selfishness, sin, the world system, and so forth. But repentance is toward God. And, um, uh, you know, the, when, when we start the Christian life, we repent uh, and we keep, continue to repent and draw near to God the rest of our, of our days and our life. Thank you so much. Um, so that's uh, kind of good to rethink once in a while. That repentance is a daily foundation. In Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it's actually listed as one of the foundations of the Christian faith, is repentance toward God. So, and notice it doesn't actually say repentance from sin, although that's part of it, but it's repentance toward the pursuit of God. So, back to our series. Like last week, we had our good friend Joseph Jenga in, and because he was speaking at the 1030 meeting, and I tried to do a little bit of helping Stephen and Anvesh and Deanna uh, show him around town and spend time with him, although they did the most of that. He was in town from Wednesday till Sunday. So I spent time with him, I think, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, so uh, John graciously took the 930 series last week, uh, 930 Sunday hour, Bible study hour, Uh, although he did not do an installment on his series on Ephesians, which you're going to get back to today, right? 
So likewise, it's been two weeks since I did my last installment of the, of the Psalm series, which actually was part the chapter one. And what we did um, in chapter one is we started by reading uh, a number of verses from Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 20, uh, 13 through 27. And I just want to highlight a couple of them by way of review. Uh, of course, in Luke 24, it is uh, the Lord, it is Easter Sunday, as we now call it. Uh, it's the day that Je Jesus rose from the dead. And in that first day, there were several appearance, appearances of Jesus to various disciples. And Luke 24 records two of those, uh, which uh, were not the first ones. Uh, the first one is recorded in the Gospel of John. But, uh, the, this, you know, one of them was with two disciples as they were walking from Jerusalem to a, a city called Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. In those days, people took seven-mile walks all the time. <laughs> I know some of you uh, do the same, but uh, others of you are praying about that. But... Uh, <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, they... Uh, he tell, tells them all uh, that, they, that everything about him in the um, Psalms and the prophets uh, had to be fulfilled. And then later that evening, he appears uh, to the, those two who have actually hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples that they've seen the Lord. And he, in fact, is risen indeed, as a few had reported from the morning. And most, most of the disciples were skeptical. And they were also quite scared. They uh, believed they were going to get rounded up by the Sanhedrin and uh, meet their deaths as well. So they were hiding in the upper room, which was probably the same room as they were in in Acts 4 and possibly Acts 2. In Acts 4, they were in the, the room above John Mark's house, uh, his mother's house. She was a wealthy follower of Christ. So uh, let's, in, let's pick it up there. When Jesus comes into the room, he's, uh, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, big word, everything, all, written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, that was a, another way um, to refer to all of the Hebrew scriptures, which were 39 books, and the same 39 books that Protestant Christians still acknowledge today, because they were the 39 books that Jesus himself acknowledged when in his ministry and the apostles. Uh, and the, what, you know, the, thir the final 39 books that were going to be considered the canon of scripture uh, in the Septuagint and the Hebrew Masoretic Test had been had been uh, had been put in their final form and decided more than 100 years before Christ arrived on the scene. Uh, then it says, he opened their minds to understand the scripture, which is a similar phrasing to what he did to the first two. And I've always said, like, if you could get the audios of those, you know, I'd sell my house, you know, everything I have to... Uh, just to listen to them once, uh, you know, and if, if I could even buy a copy where you could play it more than once, that, that'd be worth everything, wouldn't it? So um, I'm looking forward to listening to those. Uh, of course, I would have said this joke uh, using the word tapes back in the, when I was first a Christian. Some of you don't know what that is, but that was uh, a little cassette device that was used in prehistoric times. 
when, when the earth's crust was still cooling and uh, we homo sapiens were first start, starting to walk totally up, standing up straight and so forth. So, um, so when he, it says Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and he's declaring that all the scriptures, the, the books of Moses, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, uh, Greek for penta is, is, a, is the word for five, tuk is the word for books, the five books, uh, the prophets, which the way they use that term was not how we do. We, we use the prophets to describe the major and minor prophets. But back in the days of Christ, most of the historical books would, would have been listed as the prophets. And, um, and then the wisdom literature, uh, which we're going to talk about five books of wisdom literature today. Uh, the wisdom literature would have been referred to in conversationally as the Psalms. But when they said the Psalms, they also meant Song of Songs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job, and so forth. Uh, so in Proverbs, of course. So um, there, there's an acronym that's actually used for those three sections called Tanakh, and we will actually, in this series, spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about how that acronym uh, or emerged and, and what the Hebrews meant by it. Um, so, but that's for another Sunday. Um, then again, two weeks ago, we broke our usual rule of, uh, I always have just what I can fit on two pages. I'm actually breaking that rule today because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And at 4.30 this morning, I decided I'd rather sleep a little bit than finish filling out the uh, back of this because there's more material than I can get through in the one hour I have anyway. So, so there's actually a little space to take notes. That never happens in my outline. So you could probably save this as like a collector's item. Hey, the, the time Greg actually left a little space on the outline. Uh, that, I promise you that won't happen very often. So I normally uh, have, a, have a rule that whatever I can cram into the two pages, that's what we go with, uh, even though I can't get through that much material in one hour. And uh, the rest, whatever we don't get through, you can study on your own for no extra charge. So um, the, what we call the apostolic hermeneutic was actually born in those two scenes in Luke 24. Uh, Jesus began to teach the disciples how to read the Hebrew Scriptures, which Christians now call the Old Testament, uh, to see Christ in every page, every historical event, uh, much symbolism, uh, the accoutrements of the sanctuary, and so forth. I accidentally brought my phone up here. Can you put that over there? Um, thank you. So, um, so what we did two weeks ago is I actually had four pages of Scriptures that were just from the New Testament quoting the Psalms. And even though I use 12-point uh, Calibri for my type style, and uh, I don't put, uh, leave much space in between lines or anything, and I don't leave very big margins, even, even then I had to leave out about one-third of the quotes where the, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament were quoting from the Psalms. They quoted from the Psalms all the time. And we're going to see uh, one or two reasons out of many for that today. So, um, of course, some psalms 
uh, were quoted from more than others, and we showed, uh, we showed probably around 10 quotes just from Psalm 110. And of course, uh, Psalm number two is quoted uh, quite a bit because both of them are super clear foreshadowings of the Lord and of his Christ. So anyway, so today... I just want to introduce the whole concept of the wisdom literature. So there's five books in your Bible that are sometimes called the poetry books or the poetical books or the wisdom literature. And there's sometimes a little discrepancy in how that's used because we're going to look at some characteristics of, of poetry, Hebrew poetry and of, and of literature. And while all five books are poetical, uh, two of the five... Uh, don't follow the kind of the format of, of, of wisdom literature as thoroughly. And uh, so uh, those five books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, or, which has three, three popular different names, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and Canticles. Uh, normally today, if you're reading canticles, you're either reading in a Roman Catholic Bible or you're reading in a fair, kind of an older translation that predates the 1700s or so. But uh, com it's still, still a somewhat common word for the Psalms, canticles, so, which is a type of song. Uh, the Psalms, the word, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, I'm sorry, the the, the Greek word that was used in the Septuagint and then the, the word that spun off from Greece that was used by, by, uh, in Latin uh, for Psalms and, and therefore would have been used in, uh, say, Jerome's uh, Vulgate, Latin Vulgate translation of the early 4th century. Uh, that the word itself just means songs accompanied by stringed instruments. So uh, those of you, you know, Byron, Abigail, and so forth, who uh, play uh, violins, violas, and the cellos. The songs were especially written for you string instrument players. We need more mandolin players, just letting you know. <laughs> uh, if anyone knows me, they know I love string instruments. And if, if we had five or six string instruments playing with the worship band up here, I would not complain. In fact, I would be delighted. We usually have either uh, Byron on violin or Abigail on viola. We don't often have uh, Christiana on cello, uh, and uh, soon we should probably have Noel on violin from time to time as well. So, and that excites me. I love it. So, so let's get into this. Um, the first thing I just kind of want to point out is. Uh, is kind of a, similar to what we talked about last week, that the first foundational point in dealing with the Psalms is that all the poetical books, all five, are all about Jesus. That's their main theme from start to finish. And uh, God in, chose in Christ from all the eternity to have a plan whereby he would progressively reveal Jesus to his people and ultimately to the world. And uh, the Psalms uh, are a big, all the wisdom literature is a big part of that progressive plan. So in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae. Just in case you don't know a little background here, Paul 
never went to Colossae. He never visited that church. Because if you study what I call Paul's modus operandi, which I have some messages on, Paul only went to the cities that were of the most importance either politically, culturally, or economically in the Roman Empire. So, for instance, he spent considerable time in Corinth, which was the capital city of a province called Achaia. And uh, therefore, Corinth was a very, very strategic city. It'd be much like if you were planning to change the United States through churches, you would choose cities like New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, so forth. And uh, if, you were, if you were thinking about Ohio, you would first and foremost think of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, then you would also think next of Cleveland and Cincinnati, Ohio. And eventually you'd get work your way down to Dayton, which is uh, somewhere between the fifth and eighth most important city in Ohio, probably. So uh, in, when Paul was near Colossae, Paul traveled with a team. I once did a study of, if, as you go through the book of Acts and all the Pauline epistles and Peter's writings, you can actually uh, write down names that are associated with Paul in various ways. And so some of them, uh, like Peter and Apollos, are people that Paul has a friendly, amiable relationship with, enough that they recommend each other's uh, ministries, but they're not actually meeting together and strategizing together and, and working as a team. Uh, but, you know, they're clearly uh, endorsing each other. But then there's other people that are Paul's clear team. And so the, and, uh, if you go through all the names that are associated with Paul in both of those categories, you get about 33 names. And so the one, some of the ones that are Paul's team uh, like Sylvanus or Epaphras or whatever, Paul would direct disciple and, and, and be their spiritual father, and he would send them to, to various missions. So Titus, for instance, it, Paul calls Titus his true son in the faith, like uh, similar worded, wording to what he calls Timothy. And Paul uh, sends Titus at one point back to Crete, which Titus had been part of the team that had gone through the island of Crete, and they proclaim the gospel to about 15 or so cities uh, in, on the island of Crete, and Paul is sending Titus with some other team members back to Crete to organize those groups of believers that they had, that they had gathered by proclaiming the gospel and, and uh, baptizing them and getting them baptized in the Spirit and so forth. To, to form them into churches, and he's telling Titus various principles of what the churches should look like. And so he tells them that, that to appoint elders in each church and what the elders should look like. Not so much physically as their character and their walk with God. So uh, there's actually no biblical requirements for having as handsome of elders as we do. But uh, <laughs> that's just, that just happened accidentally. Um, but there are requirements for the, their walk with God and their character. Um, they don't have to be as good looking as John Gray, though. Um, that probably is a relief to some of us. Like, 
If I would have had to been as good looking as John Gray, there'd probably be no hope for me. But uh, <laughs> no, so anyway, moving on. In Colossians, so that's, that's the background of Colossians. Paul, when he was near Colossae, sent Epaphras, a member of his team, who was actually from Colossae originally. So that kind of thing gets taken into account in Paul's actions all the time. And Epaphras, with a few other guys, broke off from the main group, went to Colossae, preached the gospel, made disciples, and started forming them into a church. But Paul, although he'd never been there, and he never was an active part of the presbytery or the leadership team and so forth, in his role as evangelist, church planner, apostle, and so forth, and and, uh, the director of the team that had planted the church, Paul speaks into the church as a spiritual authority, as a spiritual leader, and uh, gives them much instruction in the four-chapter four letter called uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. So that's uh, some background to read these verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, which is another city, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul realizes that, like the Ephesians, for instance, had spent much time with Paul, and they really loved each other, and they had a great relationship. And nobody in Colossae actually had ever met Paul. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. So that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Here it is, drumroll. The mystery of of God is uh, Jesus Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that that phrase is actually saying a lot more than you might think. Wisdom is a major idea in Hebrew thinking, and the five books of wisdom had certain ideas that every Jew would know this is what wisdom is, and this is why it's so important that every godly person pursues wisdom. Wisdom wisdom needs to be your quest. And when you're pursuing wisdom, you're actually pursuing the, the, both the biblical, um, intellectual, cerebral, scriptural knowledge of Jesus Christ and the spiritual, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why whenever I start uh, discipling somebody and working with people, I ask them as uh, usually part of the first meeting, are you experiencing the presence of God in your life at various times? Like when you're worshiping with a group of people, when you're reading the Bible on your own, uh, do you experience God's presence? Do you know his voice? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. If you are actually a born-again, regenerated Christian, you will experience God's presence even before you're baptized in the Spirit. If you were brought up in a Christian tradition where you didn't get baptized in the Spirit in the first few days of being a Christian, which is very common today, although you can't find any cases of that in the actual Bible, because everyone received the baptism in the Spirit in their first week or so of, of being a Christ follower. But today, we have people who've been you know, a Christ follower for sometimes weeks and, and even months and years who uh, don't have a prayer language and haven't experienced the supernatural flow of God's presence and so forth just because we have a lot of religious confusion in our Christian culture today. And things are watered down and, uh, and uh, confused. But that's something, if you haven't experienced that baptism in the Spirit, you should be focusing on 
uh, that is uh, one of the introductory stepping stones into uh, walking with Jesus Christ. And so, um, and in that pursuit, uh, the Holy Spirit came, as if you uh, have ever done, gone through chapter one of our mini uh, Baptism in the Spirit series, we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And by that, like today, when you say the ministry of this or that, uh, we have learned to be so man-centered that the average person would say, what does the Holy Spirit do for me? But when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that's not what we're talking about. The Bible would actually start with, what does the Holy Spirit do as the active agent of the Father and the Son? What's his mission? So uh, America is one of the few English-speaking uh, countries where we call some of our cabinet members the Secretary of the Treasury or the Secretary of War and so forth. But most English-speaking countries, they would call it the minister of this. And they would be familiar with a minister uh, of finance or a minister of war. He or she has no identity of their own apart from representing that country and that country's beliefs, values, goals, and agenda uh, for, uh, for whatever particular thing they're the minister of. <laughs> And so um, the, that's why Jesus says with regard to the fact that he's about to send the ministry in John uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16 is John's version of the Last Supper. And in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke called the Synoptic Gospels, we've been over that a million times so we won't review what that means, uh, they, they all focus in the Last Supper on Jesus inaugurating the covenant meal of, of communion or the Lord's Supper uh, on his predicting that uh, Judas would betray him, of his predicting that, that um, Peter would deny him and, and repent and, and come back to strengthen his brethren. And he's the, focusing on that type of thing. But in John's version, having already read the other three, he focuses on what Jesus taught them. And he starts with Jesus uh, taking off his outer garment, girding himself with a large towel, and beginning to wash their feet, because Jesus is saying something very important. I'm about to tell you how you're going to continue to be, represent me, and continue my mission to conquer the whole world and bring every thought captive to Christ and every person obedient to Christ and every nation under the lordship of Christ. And as you do that, I'm going to give you the most terrifying power in the history of, of mankind, not the atom bomb, the Holy Spirit. And when I give you the Holy Spirit, you better have it in your heart to wash your brothers and sisters' feet because woe is us if we misuse that power as we do today for self-advancement of ministries and TV names and all sorts of other things. Uh, that I'm giving you this power to, to heal, to deliver, and most of all, Jesus says in the, in the many statements he makes about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16, that when he comes, he will not speak on his own initiative, but he'll speak whatever he hears. And that doesn't mean whatever he hears when Jonathan Maddox and I decide to have a conversation, although he does hear that. Uh, but it means what he hears from the Father and the Son in their counsels. He comes to represent the Father and the Son in their mission to conquer the world 
by conquering one heart uh, with this radical new idea of not conquering by fear or domination or control or military might, uh, such as men think about, but to conquer one willing heart by love, forgiveness, reconciliation, and discipleship at a time. And uh, this radical new force called Christian love is about to be unleashed by the Holy Spirit in all the world. Okay? So that's the context when you're reading Colossians 3, 1 through 3. You should think of all that. And, and uh, um, so, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Jesus, or Jesus, Jesus through Paul says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? Sam Wilcox, you're in, you're in Christ Jesus today, not because you decided to be a Christian. Not because you asked him into your heart. But it's by his doing. He chose you long before your grandparents even knew they were going to have kids. So, uh, but by his doing, you are in Jesus Christ. I've got to find my place again. Who came to us, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, Paul often adds the little Greek word K-A-I or Kappa Alpha Iota, which is pronounced Chi or K, depends on who you're debating with, because it's a dead language, and I've always been amazed that they feel they can know exactly how these things were pronounced, but, and I used to get corrected by my Greek teacher for my terrible pronunciations, <laughs> just like Deanna uh, corrects me for my spelling now, that's part of, part of what I pay her to do is like, and, and she always, you know, corrects my, how I pronounce words too, because most, lot, most words uh, or at least 50 cent words and stuff. I've, I've never been formally educated. I'm self-educated. So I've actually never heard anybody say a lot of words. Sometimes I've only read those words. And so Diana has to tell me how it really should be pronounced. And then I try a couple times and everyone laughs and says, uh, well, let's move on to the next point because he's never going to get it right. All right. <laughs> so Kai is the, means and. And whenever Paul says and, 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 He's doing that to emphasize this and to say these are inextricably intertwined so you can't have one without completely having the other, but each one is important of itself. So it's much like when discussing the Trinity, what was us if the, if the Nicene or Apostles' Creed doesn't discuss the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the three are one. So Christ is to us wisdom and he's our righteousness, and he's our sanctification. That should be encouraging to you. Anybody ever had a few problems with sanctification? Don't, I don't want to know. <laughs> don't tell me. But um, uh, be, uh, and Christ is your sanctification. He's the reason we have hope uh, in, in these things, and he's our redemption. Now, so a couple notes about these verses. Um, a biblical and relational definition of wisdom. So when we think, talk about the wisdom books, what are we talking about? Wisdom is something that is, is scriptural. It's something that uh, comes from the second person of the Trinity, Christ. And it's a relational word. It involves God giving you life skills to live in the fear of God. 
Now, what is the fear of God? Is it like, oh, I'm so scared? Uh, yes, and no, <laughs> both, and. Um, really, the fear of God is simply this. You and I have sin natures, and sin has an, an amazing propensity to be deceitful. And you actually think you're much further along with Christ, and you're in much less trouble spiritually than you actually are. You're, you overestimate your, uh, all the wonderful qualities of what a wonderful Christian you are. And I always know I'm in trouble as a pastor when I'm talking to someone, and a lot of their orientation is on defending like how good a Christian I am and how much I already know and so forth. And I'm like, oh my God, we're, you know, first of all, it's gonna, it might take one, two, or three years to get past that. But getting past that is when, how you get started. You're not really getting, so you, I, it's amazing how many people I know that actually memorized two or 3,000 verses, been a Christian for years, and, uh, and, you know, they haven't reached the first point of, apart from Christ, I have nothing. So if you're going to boast at all, you should boast in Christ. And so in terms of boasting in your own flesh or whatever, you should probably just estimate, underestimate, you should, you should probably just tell me what a lousy Christian you are, and uh, hopefully we won't get into a debate about who's the most lousy Christian, because I probably win. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, but hopefully in your heart you think you win, would win. Then you're ready to get started. Okay, so um, life, the fear of God is actually when you begin to understand the propensity of sin to overestimate who you are and, and how far you've gone with the Lord and so forth, and to actually believe that you can sneak a little extra drink or cheat a little on your tithe or uh, skip your devotions today and, or what, what have you, and everything's going to be fine and there won't be much, any consequences. Because after all, God's just about forgiveness. That's the modern, modern God. So I don't, you know, so we have this propensity to tease, tease you know, like, um, you know, this, uh, I had uh, five, five years in a row where I lost five pounds each year. Then last year, I should have been more alarmed than I was. We all have that tendency. Last year, I stayed the same. And this year, I'm up 10 pounds already. And as I started thinking about it, there's this whole process where I thought, I can keep Esther Price in the refrigerator and, uh, you know, buy Fig Newtons and, you know, and uh, somehow there won't be, all, like, there, the consequence won't be gaining 10 pounds because, after all, I lost five pounds five years in a row. And, you know, so that's what, that's actually what, how the sin nature thinks. I'm an expert on that, by the way. When it comes to the school of failure, I, that's, I have a PhD in, um, you know, that there's, there's this self-deception process that basically says God isn't looking. You won't find out. It won't add five pounds <laughs> or whatever. There won't be, a, it won't destroy my marriage if I, uh, you know, just allow a little lust, extra lust in my life uh, and so forth. And we convince ourselves that somehow we can escape uh, the realities of God. That's what the Bible defines as foolishness, and it's uh, the very opposite of having uh, wisdom. 
And wisdom is understanding that there's a realm of God's favor and blessing, and there's a realm of God's chastisements and even cursing. And God loves you so much to let you drift towards either realm as, as, as needed. And uh, unfortunately, we uh, have such a uh, propensity towards sin that we can uh, live in that uh, other realm for days sometimes with, and, and we don't realize it. So wisdom is living in harmony with God's righteous order. It means that you're not fellowshipping any deceptive thinking. You're walking in the light, it's called. So, you, you know, you have certain uh, things about your relationship with God and your relationship with some key people in your life, maybe your wife or, what, or brothers in the church or whatever, that you are walking in, in honesty with uh, all your shortcomings. You're no, no longer a blame shifter. Blame shifting started in Genesis 3. You can read all about the, the rise of blame shifting. And believe me, I'm an expert on it. My wife and I have a standing joke that we've had since we were first married where one of us will say to the other one, because it's true, you're a blame shifter, and the other one will respond with, well, it's your fault. <laughs> and, uh, and then we laugh. And, uh, uh, and so, hey, Jonathan, run that bottle of water up to me. We, so, um, uh, excuse making, cover-ups here. You can actually take it right back. Uh, you know, the first cover-up was that Adam and Eve trying to sow uh, fig leaves. And uh, this cover-up thing went, went, oh, sorry, went so long that eventually there was Watergate. If any of you are old enough to remember the 70s, Laura, Laura is the only one that can understand what I'm talking about, probably. <laughs> but, uh, oh, Gene and, and Jeff remember those things. Yes, I would. So that, you know, was a long time ago. But uh, cover-ups were n nothing new then. They're nothing new now. Uh, and, the, and wisdom is always characterized in the Bible by two paths. Um, the path of the righteous or the wise and the path of the wicked or the fool. Psalm 1 uh, has three verses about the path of the wise and the white righteous, followed by three verses about the path of the wicked and fools. Or actually two verses, then verse 6 sums up uh, both what the wise path is and the foolish path is. Because Psalm 1 is trying to uh, tell you the Bible is always trying to give you clues to know how what, it, what it's saying. Psalm 1 is telling you this is what all the psalms are about. All of the psalms are to be interpreted in the light of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. First, you have to really understand those two psalms before you read all the other psalms. Because they're the keys. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are given to teach us how to read the psalms. Okay? So, uh, uh, note two, um, Hebrew wisdom literature is usually given in a poetic format. Boy, I'm in trouble. There's like four minutes left. Can we, I have to get it. Let's get a new clock that has like a remote where I can just turn it backward from here. <laughs> uh, what if they have such a clock? I can just rewind, you know, like it's 8.15. No, it's just, or let's make it five minutes to 10. All right. I got 20. Um, So uh, some of you know uh, Proverbs 8 is a chapter all about wisdom. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about when it's talking about wisdom, it's talking about Jesus Christ. The whole chapter is about Jesus. And therefore, it speaks of wisdom as being with God from the beginning. Because he is God, therefore he has no beginning, no end. He's the eternally begotten Son of God. One of the great mysteries of, the life, of life in, in, our, in our experience. We know, for instance, there's Beth back there, one of the great wisdom ladies that I know. And she has these two children. And they were begotten at, at certain points in time. We even celebrate their birthdays and stuff. But Jesus was begotten of the Father eternally. So there was never a time that he wasn't begotten of the Father. So when you have that all figured out, come share with us what uh, out understand all that. But that's one of the beginning mysteries of the Christian faith. And Jesus is that wisdom. And so Proverbs uh, 8 goes on to tell us that he was uh, rejoicing, is, used, is mo most modern translations, in verse 30 and 31. But um, in the uh, complete Jewish Bible, it uses plain. In the Wycliffe Bible, it uses played with the Lord. Uh, in the, what's called the expanded Bible, which is a very similar type of translation to the amplified Bible, which is more, people know more about the, uh, that word laughing, by the way, should be in parentheses of both, or in quotes on both sides of the word. But uh, he was laughing with the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I love to think about Proverbs 8, frankly. Um, so wisdom in Proverbs 8 is clearly the person of the eternal Son of God. Now, I have in bold print there God's sovereign Christological purpose in compiling the, uh, in the post elic period. So the Psalms were written over a period of about 1,300 years dating from Moses to uh, well past David, but they were put in the form we have today by Jewish scribes uh, after the Babylonian captivity, after the exile. And uh, they put them purposely in five books. Your Psalms have five books. Just, and your wisdom literature has five books. And that's quite intentional because the number five is very important biblically. We're going to get to that in a second. But they are compiling them on purpose with a particular goal in mind. During the post-exile period, Israel lived from that time until the coming of Christ, knowing that God had promised them there would always be a messianic king that sat on the throne of his father, David. And now we don't have that anymore. So there were kings after David for quite a few generations before they went into, in 722, the Northern Kingdom uh, was captured by the Assyrians and went through the first wave of what's called the Diaspora. That is, the, the, the Jewish Israelite people were, were dispersed in, th in and through the nations. Uh, the second wave of that started in 586 B.C. When, when Babylon conquered the Southern Kingdom, or Judea. And uh, during, as they're about to be conquered, Jeremiah is prophesying that this conquest and this exile will last 70 years. That's why Daniel says, I observed in the book the time, and uh, the Israelites, actually, uh, the decree from Cyrus that allowed uh, the Jews to start going back to Jerusalem uh, happened uh, approximately 50 years after the captivity, but it was 70 years until the temple was rebuilt. 
until uh, lots of Israelites started to come back to Jerusalem and re-inhabit the, the land promised to Abraham. And so, um, and the scriptures foresee that and prophesy that in several places. And so, uh, during, when they came back, there was no longer any Messianic king. And so, it would be a little bit like if, you really, if you're a single guy and you really want to get married and you think about, like, I hope to God, God helps me find a wife, and that's on your, you know, agenda all the time. Or it might be like if you really, really want to graduate college and be done with all that or whatever. I, it's, there's no way to do it justice. To the Israelite, it was the most important thing they longed for and thought about all the time is when will the true uh, king, uh, the true child of David come to us. And the Psalms are mostly about that longing. And they're purposely put in an order to focus on that longing in the five books. Now, that's a very similar thing. Boy, I guess I'll just finish one more thing and I'll just have to probably pick this up to next week. We should probably start at 9 instead of 9.30. <laughs> Can't get enough people to come for one hour, let alone... Let's start at 8.30 and, and uh, have two hours. Uh, you know, that's what I loved about the Bible study at Wright State. I always got to speak for two hours on all, all my most important stuff. But um, <laughs> Unfortunately, only a small percentage of our church has ever heard all the most important things that I teach. But um, So let's... let's uh, I guess we'll, we'll end with telling this story. In 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, but there must also be heresis, is the Greek word. It's usually translated in modern English translations as schisms or divisions or factions. But the Greek word is the word we get heresies from. And he's saying there must be heresies among you in order that the way of the church truth may become clear, or you could translate it manifest, or become apparent. And God actually allowed a process to start uh, approximately 50 AD that continued uh, through, the, through about uh, 400 AD, where false spinoff ideas, false representations of Christianity, much like uh, 90, over 90-some 90 percent of Christianity today, has a lot, a lot of spiritual confusion and erroneous ideas. God ordained that to happen. And in fact, we, by the close of the New Testament, it's happening so much that Paul's letter to the Colossians and uh, John's first letter, 1 John, are actually responses to all these false ideas that are being entered. And, uh, and so they, they are trying to teach true and correct doctrine in light of ideas that, that eventually were full-blown what's called Gnosticism. Today, Gnosticism is a major, major problem in, in all of evangelical Christian thinking. And so, um, God sovereignly allowed these challenges so that the church would be forced to come together and say, what does the Scripture really say? And that process eventually caused the church to be forced to give us an official list of what books you can trust 
even though the 27 books that they decided on were being used by all the churches as early as 70 AD. There were no books of the New Testament that were, were not written before the fall of Jerusalem, unlike some modern ideas that they, John wrote as late as 90-some AD. That's not true. Uh, all of John's books, Revelation included, were written by 66 AD or so. And um, in most churches had most of the 27 books and, and, and endorsed them uh, from that time on, but no one had ever gotten together and made an official list. The church was forced to do that because of people submitting false lists, especially a guy named Marcion, who rejected the whole Old Testament in large portions of the New Testament and listed 14 of the New Testament books as being the books that parts of them you could rely on. So uh, Athanasius was at uh, Athanasius Contramundum, if you know who I'm talking about. Boy, I, I got to close here. Um, you know, one of the great heroes of the faith wrote in a letter, these are the 27 books that all the churches have always agreed are the books we can use. And the church have made that list official at a, at a later second council of Nicaea and so forth. But uh, and other, other church councils. But also, during that process, the, the church wrote creeds. The, the ones we're most familiar with are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We recite those on Sunday mornings. But there's also the Athanasian Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon and the, uh, the Orange, Orange, Council of Orange Creed. And uh, that one we would never recite at church, I promise you, because that one's like six pages long. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you think my messages are long. But anyway... That was a sovereign per process that, that most people thought of as negative. And we have, humans, we have this tendency to think of negative things as being something bad. But negative things, God gave you that troubled kid or that terrible boss or what, that uh, so problem with your knee or whatever you're struggling with. He gave you that to try to reach you. That's why he gave you that terrible boss or that lousy roommate, or that difficult mother, or whatever gifts you've been given by God that we don't appreciate sometimes. But God actually caused the Hebrew leaders to clarify which psalms are the ones that deserve to be in the Word of God shortly after the Babylonian captivity. And their, part of their process was they were all about looking forward to the Messiah, the the. The, 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 the anointed one and, and uh, the true son of David. So we'll probably use this same outline next week and because uh, I didn't even get it halfway into the introduction. But uh, hopefully you learned a few things and we're going to, uh, I promise you that if you stay with this whole series, I cannot promise that it'll only be 12 parts, which was my original goal. That's probably not going to happen. But, uh, of course, I can always have chapter 2A, chapter 2B, chapter 2C. <laughs> you know, I tried to keep the Search of Scripture series as only 39 parts, so there's lots of part A, B, and Cs, because there's really like 90 parts. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was kind of a good one. You can use the numbering to cheat. And uh, so we might have only 12 parts, but unfortunately, lots of those parts might have A, B, C, and D, and E. But in any case, uh, if you stay with this series, you will know a lot about how to read the Psalms in the context of who Jesus Christ is and what the whole Bible is about. Amen.